0: Welcome to Episode 6 of South Coast, A Shaman's Tale from the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 12 Aram's Inlet, November 22, 2304 Jimmy tilted his chair back and stuck his feet up on the scarred corner of his desk. Casey raised an eyebrow, but Tony just settled back in his chair. Outside, the wind whistled through the eaves of the office building and rattled the glazing. Periodically, the sleet would patter over the roof above them like somebody was throwing gravel. "'So what do we know?' Jimmy asked, nobody at large. Casey started. "'The horse is up and buttoned down. Ferd has the tank drained and the seal case on it. She'll be good until we're ready to put her back over the side and march.' Tony added, Landings for the last few weeks of the season were good, but nowhere near where they'd need to be to make quota. Who'd lose their boats? Jimmy asked, already knowing the answer. If the projections are correct? Everybody, Tony answered. Casey frowned, but that makes no sense. If everybody loses their boats, then nobody's left fishing. Where's the profit in that? Tony looked over at her and said, yep, you put your finger right on it, and when you're fired by the company, you're eligible for deportation. Casey hadn't made that connection up to then because Jimmy saw it register behind her eyes. The shock of it was like a blow. They can't do that, Casey exclaimed. They who, Jimmy asked. The company, she exclaimed. Those bastard parent... Casey realized suddenly, and her mouth snapped closed. Tony snickered, and even Jimmy chuckled. My parents were actually married to each other when I was born, but your point is well taken. Casey blushed, very red, in embarrassment. Um, I didn't mean... Her voice trailed off. Yeah, Jimmy said, you did, but it's okay. I feel the same way. The problem is the management company that the old man has coordinating the businesses, Tony pointed out. Pirano has too many deals, too many planets, too many people to be able to function under the control of just one man. They speak with my father's voice, Jimmy said. What they say goes. So why is your father trying to shut down fishing on St. Cloud, Casey asked. That's an easy one, so they can get us all off the planet, Tony said. The interesting question is why do they want the South Coast cleared of people? That'd actually be easy to do, Jimmy pointed out. Under our charter, the company has the right to terminate operations here at the discretion of the board of directors. It gets a little dicey because it's a joint board set up here with Allied Agriculture, who have the big farms and sheep herds, so it's not directly controlled by Pirano. But the board could vote to terminate their partnership, and Pirano would be forced off the planet, Tony finished. It would be expensive. There's penalty clauses built in to make it kind of a poison pill. Neither board can boot the other company out. A particularly violent blast of wind rasped sleet across the windows, and conversation lapsed until Casey asked, But why? Why indeed, Jimmy asked. The terminal on Jimmy's desk beeped once, and Jimmy blinked when he saw the origination tag. He slapped the receive button and looked into the pickup lens. Violet, what a surprise, he said into the pickup. The middle-aged woman in a classic business suit looked into the pickup on her end of the connection. Hello, Jimmy. Satellite says you're getting a bit of weather down that way, she said with a smile. The wind died down at that point, making the absence of noise a punctuation in what had become a comfortable background rumble. "Yeah, just a bit of sleet and some wind, Jimmy said with a grin. How's things down on the farm? Violet grinned back. We got the fall crops in just in time, and the flocks over on the eastern reaches are going to set records for production of fleece and mutton. Thanks for asking. Jimmy noted the smile on her mouth didn't reach her eyes. In a sudden burst of intuition, he asked, so you're going to make your quotas then? Violet raised her eyebrows a bit and curled the tip of her tongue around an incisor. Funny you should mention that, she said, with a not-quite grin. A bit higher than might be expected, Jimmy prompted. Violet nodded seriously into the pickup, but only said, well, they're going to be a challenge for certain, but we're doing the best we can. And you? Jimmy nodded back, but only said... Well, you know, fishing, it's an iffy business when you're out on the water, but all the accountants know about is the landings. Oh, yeah, the accountants, Violet said with a little laugh. Tony, as one of the accountants in question, was about to say something, but Jimmy held up a hand out of sight of the pickup, and Tony subsided. Casey just looked confused. Well, listen, Jimmy, the woman continued, the reason I'm calling is that we're having a little get-together here to celebrate the harvest this weekend. We'd really like to have you and some of your people come up to celebrate with us any chance you can flit up on the weekend? We're having a party on Saturday night. Nothing fancy. A few of the office staff, some of the producers. And you'd like me to bring the fish, he asked with a grin. Well, I'll give you some lamb chops to take back if you like, she said with a grin in return. Throw in some sweet yams and you're on, Jimmy joked. Fair enough, the woman replied. We're gathering at Fairfax, she added. The Fairfax Hotel has rented us the ballroom, so you can just flit up on Saturday. Plan to spend the night. That sounds like a plan, Violet, Jimmy replied. That'll give us a chance to catch up. Oh, yes, it should be great fun. How many people should I plan to bring with me? Jimmy asked offhandedly. I'll oh, bring as many as you like, she said. I think we can cope with anything up to twenty, but uh, be sure to bring Tony Spinelli. Tony's eyebrows shot up when he heard his name, and maybe some of the captains. Be good to see how the other half lives? Jimmy asked with a smile. Violet winked. Something like that. Okay, Vi- "'I'll put together a manifest of goods and have it sent to your office "'so your people can coordinate with the hotel staff on the fish.' "'Perfect,' Violet responded. "'Use my address and I'll make sure it gets where it needs to be. "'Let me send you a schedule for the weekend "'and a list of available rooms and confirmation codes "'for your people to use at the Fairfax. "'We're planning on feeding about a hundred people here "'and we'll be having a dance afterwards. "'Should be quite a party.' "'Well, it sounds like quite a shindig,' Jimmy said. "'Go ahead and send that list to me "'and I'll make sure Tony and a few of the gang are in Fairfax on Saturday.' be good to get away for a few days. There was about a two-heartbeat pause before she asked, Did you really take a boat out for the last of the season, Jim? What, you think I forgot how? He blustered good-naturedly. She shook her head, not in the least. Just surprised when I heard. I thought you'd given that up. Jimmy shrugged. I'll tell you about it this weekend. Good, she said with an emphatic nod. I look forward to hearing. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure, Vi. See you. She cut the connection from the other end and the window closed. Jimmy looked at Tony. Well, you uh doing anything this weekend? Tony shrugged. Well, I'd have to check my social calendar, but I think I can make it. Casey, Jimmy asked, you want to pay a visit to our country cousins? That was Violet Austin, she said, the St. Cloud Coordinator for Allied Agriculture. Yeah, Jimmy said, that's Violet. And you're asking a war frat to go to a dinner party with a hundred of her people? Jimmy shrugged. Tony and me... We're wharf rats, too, and they're just farmers. What's the problem? Casey blinked several times before she said, There's something else going on. Jimmy shrugged again. Something wrong with friends getting together to celebrate the end of the season? She didn't call you up to talk about the weather, did she? Casey asked, pressing her point. No, Jimmy conceded. She called to invite me to dinner. His inbox chimed as a new message dropped into it, and when he saw it was from Violet, he opened it first page of the spreadsheet was the schedule, and the second was a list of rooms and confirmation numbers, just as she'd promised. The third was the quota assessment for Allied Agriculture for the coming year. As his eyes ran down the columns, he began to shake his head. What is it? Tony asked. Looks like we're not the only ones with quota problems, he replied softly. Tony came around the desk to look at the report over Jimmy's shoulder. He whistled. Tony, would you have Georgie and Angela put together a nice pack of tasties for us to take up to Fairfax this weekend? Tony never took his eyes off the screen, but nodded slowly. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And should I send that list to Violet? Yeah, if you wouldn't mind letting her know. Jimmy nodded at the screen, and Tony nodded back. Casey looked back and forth between the two men. What the hell's going on? Let's just say we're going to compare notes with the other half of the planet, Jimmy said. About quotas, she asked, but I thought you said ours are impossible. They are, Jimmy said. Then what are you going to talk about? There's our two, Tony added. The lull in the storm outside passed and the wind rattled the wall while sleety pebbles bounced off the glazing. That makes no sense, Casey said finally. Jimmy shook his head. No, it makes perfect sense to somebody. Our problem is that we don't know how it makes perfect sense or to whom. Once we do, we'll have a better idea of what we're up against. Chapter 13, Calum's Cove, November 23, 2304 The satellite showed the storm was finally beginning to push past and out to the east. After two hours of sitting in the warm kitchen with his mother working quietly on the net, Otto had had about enough of listening to the wind whistling around the corners of their snug house. He stood up from the kitchen table where he'd been working a word puzzle on his pita and said, I think I'll go see what father's up to out there. His mother looked at the chrono. He probably wants a cuppa. Why don't you brew some and take a pot out to him? The kettle was already warm on the back of the stove, so it was only a matter of a tick or two, and while the herb tea steeped, his mother helped him set up a tray with cups, honey, and some scones that she'd just baked that morning. He smiled his thanks as he slipped into his heavy coat for the short walk out to the shop. His mother clipped a lid over the tray and rested the warm pot of tea on top for extra weight, and when he was ready, opened the door for him so he could scoot out into the storm. The icy pellets stung his cheeks and hands, although his shock of dark hair protected his scalp for the most part. He walked briskly, balancing the tray against his own movement and the buffeting of the wind that seemed to want to catch the tray like a sail and lift it away. Gratefully, he stepped into the lee of the shop and, slipping in quickly, "'shouldered the door closed behind him. "'Cup of tea, father?' he asked. "'His father looked up when the door opened "'from where he was sitting beside the stove. "'Small flakes of wood were scattered across his lap "'and onto the floor. "'The small room was filled with the smell of fresh-cut wood, "'wood smoke, and that aroma Otto associated with his father. "'Richard smiled when he saw Otto "'and laid his work on the side table. "'Just what the doctor ordered,' he exclaimed, "'clapping his palms together once "'and rubbing them together comically. "'How'd you know?' Otto laughed. It's just a hunch. Actually, it was Mother's idea to send the tray. I was just going to come out and pester you myself. Richard smiled fondly. Well, as long as you brought the refreshments, I can't say no to a bit of pestering now, can I? He asked. Otto eased the tray down on the workbench and slipped the hot pot of tea off the top of the pile. A little of it had slopped, but not enough to matter, and the few drops disappeared readily into the stained wood of the workbench. He lifted the lid and poured hot tea for both of them, handing the mug to his father, who turned down honey and took a scone. Otto added a goodly dollop of honey to his own mug and helped himself to a scone as well. He snaked one foot around the leg of a bench stool and pulled it out where he could sit on it, settled down to an easy silence while he drank tea, ate scones, and listened to the wind howl outside. The small wood stove in the corner provided more than enough warmth to take the bite out of the cold seeping in from outside, and in the lulls between the gusts, Otto could hear the faint crackling of the wood in the fire. The wall beside the door was stacked high with firewood, split and cut to length, and all of the small bits of wood and shell had been sorted and put into buckets, some of which were hung from the pegs on the rafters, others were stacked back in the corners. The dampest bits had been dried in mesh bags, and some of those were still hanging overhead here and there like some woody hams hung up to smoke. Richard finished his scone and set the mug of tea on the table, took up his knife and wood again. He looked at his son and smiled his approval. You did really well with these, Otto. Otto just shrugged. Glad to help, he said, pleased that he seemed to be getting the hang of what he was coming to think of as the shaman thing. He thought back over the final weeks of the season before the weather had turned and beached all the fishing boats. His daily habit of walking the beach for part of the day and fishing from the point for another part had turned into a kind of pleasure for him. The tide told him when to fish and when to walk. The air carried the sense of imminent winter wherever he went, and the long stroll down the beach each day almost always showed him something interesting. One day it was a group of crabs dancing on the beach, scuttling back and forth, waving pincers and bobbing their bodies. Another time a flock of seabirds were diving and wheeling over a school of fish just off the beach. He always filled his bag with bits of wooden shell, sometimes with obvious figures and sometimes not. Each day he'd catch something for dinner, sometimes a simple bottom fish or two, and other times the area would have schools of dancers, jack or bream. One day, his mother suggested that he visit Mary Murray and ask her about crabs. He spent about a part of a week learning about the coastal shellfish, mobile and otherwise. They'd even teamed up on a couple of occasions to harvest bivalves from the weedy rocks west of town. She'd shown him how to cook them with a bit of water and a pot full of rockweed. Even his mother had been impressed with the homemade crab nets he'd made to catch the tasty coastal crabs. They'd eaten well, and the deep freeze was full from the fall bounty part of which came home from the boats and more of which otto himself had collected and prepared eventually the weather became too harsh the winds too heavy and the air too cold to be worth fishing the risks to life and property dictated that the fleet be hauled ashore winterized and wrapped against the elements the twenty three vessels that made up the callum cove fleet were all cocooned in neat rows behind the jetty crane that handled the craft each fall it lifted them gently from the water placed them in antigrav cradles the yard tractors towed him to their assigned storage areas, and the yard workers locked them down. After seeing to the fluids and electronics, the boats were shrink-wrapped against the weather and slept through the harshest season. Come spring, the process would be reversed, and the boats would, one by one, be plucked from their cradles and refloated, refueled, and begin their work again. So how was it? Out on the boat, I mean, Otto asked his father in a conversational tone. His father snorted a little laugh. (laughs) It was okay, he said finally. It was a lot of work, but also rather satisfying. The extra money will certainly come in handy, too. Otto hadn't really thought of that, the money. Of course, the crews got paid, both in salary and shares of the catch. Otto knew that, but he hadn't really realized what it meant. It hadn't changed the way they lived, really. His mother had gotten a new PlanetNet terminal, and with it a new level of access to the PlanetNet that gave them more news information and entertainment from off-planet. They'd also made a new weekly ritual of dining out once a week when the boats took holiday. He supposed the money was being invested against the future uncertainty. "'Do you think the company is going to kick everybody off the planet?' he asked, his train of thought going from money to job to quota to the probability of catastrophe. His father stopped his careful carving and looked up with a shake of his head and a shrug. "'I don't know, Otto. It doesn't seem possible. But everybody on the water thinks the quotas are unreasonable.' If you don't make quota, you can't keep your job, he asked. Well, it's a little more complicated than that, his father said. The way I understand it, each boat is given a share of total landings required. If the skipper doesn't make his quota, there's a range of responses from really nothing at all if you only miss by a little, up to losing the boat if you miss it by a lot. With these landings, everybody's going to miss it by a lot. But why, Otto asked. That makes no sense. His father shrugged. That's the question everybody is asking, and nobody has any answers. He took a sip of his tea and went back to his careful application of knife to wood. "'And if you lose your job, you get deported,' Otto pressed. Richard sighed. "'Well, yes, although I'm not sure what that means for us. I'm not a company employee, normally. As a shaman, I'm not subject to the same rules as a fisherman. But mother is a company employee,' Otto pointed out. It was true. In addition to the fishing boat, his mother was a financial analyst.' That was her real job, and what they lived on for as long as Otto could remember. She was the person who kept track of the prices and markets for the Calum's Cove production. She coordinated it with the brokers in St. Cloudport and up in the Orbital, and handled a large portion of the village's output, seeing to it that it got to market safely and with the most advantageous price. She'd be able to stay with me, so would you, his father said. But seriously, if all the fishermen lose their boats and get deported, then I have no job either, really. The company won't make us leave, but the three of us can't stay here alone either. In the ensuing silence, the wind rattled outside and drew the fire up the chimney, momentarily brightening the glow from the stove. Otto stood and, pulling a couple of sticks from the pile, carefully stoked the firebox. He topped his cup with the cooling tea and provided the same service for his father. Do you think I might try my hand at carving?" he asked, at last, trying not to look too interested, but actually dying to get his hands on a knife and whittle out one of the little animals. All through the fall he'd thought about the idea of carving the wood he was so diligently retrieving from Sandy Long. Something stopped him from even trying it then. Now, watching the chips and shavings falling from his father's hands, seeing the fresh carvings lined up on the bench, and smelling the new-cut wood, He was nearly overcome with the desire to have wood and steel in his own hands. His father raised one eyebrow skeptically and looked long and hard at his son. Don't expect to be carving Welkies, but there's no reason you shouldn't learn a few of the basics, he said at last, totally surprising Otto with the response. There's a knife in that drawer that you can use. He pointed to a drawer in the workbench with the point of his knife, but you'll have to sharpen it first. Otto went to the indicated drawer and pulled out a folding knife. It had a short, sturdy blade that hinged and folded cleverly into the handle so that when folded, no points or edges were exposed. The handle itself was some kind of composite material that warmed to his touch quickly and fairly glowed with a patina of age. It was your grandfather's pocket knife, he said. Grandfather Krug used it to carve his Welkies. Why aren't you using it? Otto asked. Well, I'd already started carving with my own knife when he died, he said, I didn't want to change, just for the sake of changing. He pointed to the whetstone mounted on the bench. Get that a little wet and sharpen the blade on it, he instructed. Otto looked at the stone and spit on it, leaving a small blob of saliva on the smooth rock. His father laughed. Well, usually I just spill a little water on it, but that works too, he said with a smile, and pointing to a bottle of water that Otto hadn't noticed. Just cut the knife across the stone in equal number of strokes on each side. Otto had seen his father do it before, and he did his best to mimic what he remembered. He cut three strokes on each side of the blade and then three more. He held the blade up to the light to see the silvery new metal in a bright line down the edge of the blade. His father looked at it over his shoulder and said, Okay, now grab a bit of kindling and see what you can do with it. He smiled encouragingly and went back to his seat. Remember, little bits at a time. You can always take out a little more, but you can't put it back once it's cut. Otto spent the next stand cutting notches and shaving the edges off a small bit of kindling. He carved just to get the feel of the knife biting in the wood. In the end, it was a gouged-up piece of wood that he tucked into the stove with a grin and a comment. It's not as easy as it looks. His father smiled up at him. Practice, Otto, just practice. Glancing at the colonel, he said, well, shall we go get some lunch? His father closed the damper on the stove a bit, and they collected the teacups and pot, splitting the load between them. Otto carefully folded the knife and slipped it into his pocket before shrugging into his jacket. When they were ready, his father opened the door, and they ducked their heads against the storm, as they walked quickly as they could back to the cottage. A hot stew was simmering on the stove, and the aroma of fresh biscuits greeted them. Rachel looked up from where she sat at the terminal with a smile. There you are, she said with a grin. I was just about to send out the hounds to find you. Richard grinned. Well, we were carving and didn't notice the time. You could have yelled from the back door. She shrugged. It was kind of pleasant having the house to myself. She winked at Otto, who knew exactly how she felt. What do you mean, we were carving? She asked with the emphasis on the we. Otto's trying his hand, his father said. When his mother looked at him, he was quick to say, It's not as easy as it looks. She chuckled. What did you carve? Kindling, he said ruefully, and they gathered around the table for lunch. And what have you been up to besides this excellent stew? his father asked. Rachel grinned. Well, normal stuff. The new net access gives me a lot better look at the overall financial picture, and I'm really enjoying seeing the news from Dunsany. It's so easy to get suckered into believing that the only thing in the world is St. Cloud. Richard chuckled softly. Well, for us, that's pretty much true. Rachel shrugged back. It would be a lot harder pressed to make ends meet if not for the parts and such that the company ships in from Dunsany. His father nodded agreement at her point and tucked into the stew. Anything new from the company? Otto asked. The idea that they'd soon be forced to leave St. Cloud seemed, by turns, impossible, inevitable, and terrifying. His mind kept coming back to that idea over and over she shook her head. Allied's having a party this weekend. They've invited Jimmy Pirano and some of his people up to celebrate the harvest with them in Fairfax. The net's been a buzz about it. Richard frowned. That's unusual. I don't remember they've ever done that before. Neither did Allen, and he's been invited to go along, his mother said with an odd smile. Richard looked at his wife, but she only shrugged in response. Curiouser and curiouser, he said. But he went back to his stew. Anything else in the news? She shrugged. There's a talk out of Marguerite that there's a lot of jobs for deep space construction workers. That came in on one of the clippers yesterday. Richard snorted. Well, we know where to go if we get deported then, I guess. Rachel shuddered and said, I can't imagine living in a hollowed-out rock in outer space. While Otto was still considering the idea, a particularly violent gust shook the house. Dryly, Richard commented, well, look at it this way. No storms. She looked like she was considering it for a moment as she cocked her head to listen. No sun, no sea, no sky? She shook her head. Not worth it. They ate quietly for a time before Richard asked, so what are they thinking? Rachel just shrugged. I have no idea. But the price of our shares just went down for the first time in Staniers on the Dunsany Exchange. Richard's eyebrows went up. They went down, he asked. She shrugged. seems like the market thinks the quotas are unreasonable, too. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia-Perdigon. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For a website and more information on the golden age, visit www.durandus.org slash golden.